Hi and welcome to Didn't See It Coming, the podcast about brands that are learning from the past, looking to the future, and succeeding today because of it. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. This week I want to talk to you about a book that I've read. It's called A Beautiful Constraint. I was contacted by um, a person in the publicity business and they said, Mark, we've got a new book for you to check out. It's called A Beautiful Constraint. It's from the guys who wrote uh, Eating the Big Fish, a a book which I was a huge fan of. It's all about building challenger brands. And so I said, yeah, please send me the book, send me the book. And I read the book and I always know that uh, a book is good when I uh, dig into it just a little bit and discover stuff that I want to steal right away. And true enough, in my practice uh, as a consultant, I've been stealing the lessons from a beautiful constraint left, right and center. So... I called up the publicist again and I said, I want to meet the guys, the guys who wrote this book, the guys who came up with these ideas, and I want to, I want to do a podcast with them because um, I think the world needs to know. So very, very nice person. She said, yes, well, we've got Mark Barton, who is one of the co-authors of the book. Mark wrote the book along with Adam Morgan, and uh, Mark is on the air with me today. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Mark. How are you? Apart Ex- from being a thief. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a, you know, that's, you know, artists steal and, 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 uh, and craftsmen borrow. So I, I prefer to be an artist. Uh, it, it, it's excellent being a thief. It's all, it, you know, I, I just love being surrounded by people who I feel are smarter than me, who continue to feed me with ideas that I can, I can just take and apply to people's business and then take it as my own, you know? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, got some, so much out of the book already. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's, you know, the thing is, uh, I guess is by way of, uh, starting into questions uh, mm. the thing is it's not a new concept a beautiful constraint you know you and I were talking before uh, in advertising 99% of your clients place some sort of constraint on you so you know you have to work within a certain budget a timeline it's always insanity but what you've done you've managed to figure out a methodology for making this work for you maybe you can explain that to us yeah, well, uh, just to uh, underscore what you said, you know, we, we, you and I from the ad business, at least uh, deep in our backgrounds, and David Ogilvy's classic maxim, give me the freedom of a tight brief, is what we grew up with. So we understood as strategists and creatives that the best way to unleash creativity is to create a very specific, often a question, Dan Wyden, when I worked for him, liked me to write briefs in the forms of very specific questions that ask people, therefore, to be very creative in the, in the very small space. And that's so bread and butter for us. But when we started looking at this and our, our world as people who've worked with challenger brands now for 15, 16 years, we're always faced with situations where we feel constrained in some way. And so we've started to understand um, how to be creative in the face of constraints. And when you pull the camera back and you look at uh, culture more broadly, you start to see that there are all kinds of people that have looked at this. So in India, there's this concept called Jugaad. And you may have seen, um, there's a book by a guy called Navi Redu that writes about the Jugaad concept coming out of India, the French system day, uh, going all the way back to the Romans. Marcus Aurelius has this notion that the obstacle is the way. So this is not a new idea to your point, but what we felt was missing was a how-to manual. Because even though we all know this, and our culture has encoded this, and it's 
language, right? So I'm sure when I first came to the States, I heard this expression, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And I just love that as a sort of signifier of American uh, in innovation. Mm -hmm. Go for it sort of attitude. Yeah, yeah. The go for it. But nobody, there, there's no recipe for lemonade making, if you like. And so what we felt we wanted to do was to uh, analyze a number of these cases across all, a really diverse range of fields. So not just the world of business and brands where we came from, but um, we looked at the nonprofit world, we looked at uh, motor racing, we looked at entrepreneurship and so on. And we said, when you see a situation, when we see a situation where the constraint itself has, rather than being um, a limitation that is uh, inevitably going to thwart us in meeting our ambitions, it's turned out to be the secret ingredient that's actually transformed that business. So when, and, and, and that situation, so when we see those uh, situations, what's actually going on? And can we break it down into the fundamentals of the mindset that you need to mm -hmm. approach those constraints, the methodology that you need to use in order to be productive in the face of that constraint, and then understanding also the motivation. So mindset, method, motivation around how to make constraints beautiful, how to make constraints transformational uh, for your situation. How does that work? And that's what the book is about. Well, you know, one of the things, uh, the three M's that you just uh, gave me there, that is a fundamental piece of the book, which I think is awesome too because you actually lay out a roadmap for me how mm. to how to think in terms of these three things and then how to actually go okay here's a checkbox okay have you got this have you got this have you got this and it, it's nice because uh, it brings uh, order to the chaos of constraint yep. you know you're going oh my god we don't have what we need how are we going to do this okay calm down everybody you know you've got this world i don't know at least uh, from my perspective where uh, things seem to be getting crazier crazier more chaotic more chaotic you've got um, concepts like reverse innovation where you know ideas that have been solved one way are suddenly upended and turned on their head uh, by new ideas. Uh, are we creating more radical innovation now because the constraints are becoming more radical? Well I, you know I suspect that um, every generation, every era has had its own version of this narrative right mm -hmm. Change is crazy we, we're becoming more and more um, time starved mm -hmm. and it's causing you know just all kinds of um, agita in the world but still you know you have to look at uh, the reality you should just take something like um, social media and the explosion of choices how many ways do you and I have mark where we can connect with each other at least a dozen yeah and they're all offering something slightly different they're all very good and I cannot manage that as a as a human being trying to run a small business here trying to manage all of those different um, uh, channels is causing chaos it's, it's creating constraints yes. and so there is this sense in which um, the constraint the opportunities that are being created by all these different um, and new technologies phenomenal on the one hand it's creating abundance as we talk about it in the book but at the same time on the other hand it's creating this notion of scarcity and so in in a in this rich suit between uh, scarcity and abundance the constraints are rising up one at a time you know quite frequently and our opportunity to be able to have a positive mindset towards those constraints when they occur is what this book is trying to address it's like you know we all know and you know you are a creative director and have had a great um history in the world of creativity and innovation and I expect that you have a reasonably productive relationship with constraints but mere mortals don't mere mortals assume that there is a 
a type of person that is particularly good. I'm not creative is the thing that I hear more often than not in our work. And one of the things we're trying to do with this book is to give everybody a little bit more confidence and a little bit more structure in how to think productively around constraints. So Mark, you just touched on something really, really big there. Uh, You know, the difference between uh, the really, really good constraint-based innovators and all the rest of us, maybe you can uh, dig into that a little bit for us. Yeah, well, we got a great insight from Michael Beirut, uh, legendary pentagram designer. And we went to Michael fairly early in our process of laying down some of the tenets of this book. And we said, you know, we kind of have this idea, Michael, that there are three types of people. There are victims, there are neutralizers, there are transformers. The victims are people that uh, their inevitable orientation to constraints is, well, I was on track to do X, but now I'm facing this impossible constraint. I'll reduce my ambition in some kind of way. Then f- slightly further along that spectrum, if you imagine a spectrum in front of you, there's the neutralizer. These are people that meet that constraint and go, well, there's probably a workaround. You know, I'm going to maybe be able to meet my ambition, but I'm going to have to do it through this different route. I'll just kind of navigate around it. And then there are the transformers. And the transformers are people who embrace the opportunity and constraint and try to find its creative potential, its creative fertility. And we went to Michael with that and we said, you know, we imagine, Michael, that you and the likes of Yves Behar and Dan Wyden, you are transformers. And he said, whoa, 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 stop, time out. And he told us a number of stories that basically said, you know, I always, even I, Michael Beirut, with incredible pedigree and track record and craft skills and a team of designers behind me, I typically, when facing an impossible brief, a constraint-laden brief, start in the victim mindset. And it takes me a while to make that journey from victim to transformer. And it was a really important moment because it made us realize that all these people that we've met in our own work who started at victim, to allow them to be there, um, to go to that place saying, all right, let's talk about how much this brief sucks. Let's talk about all the difficulties we're going to face and have a cathartic conversation that puts all the victim mentality out there and then start to try to navigate them slowly but surely using the scaffolding of these tools that we've built to say you can migrate over here to transformer let me tell you stories about school teachers in oakland about medical professionals in alaska about race car drivers in formula one and it'll fill the room with these incredible stories of transformation to convince them that there is no innate magic special person that's really good at doing this it's a journey for all of these different kinds of people to go on and so you know we've started to talk about um when we engage with people about going on this journey together from victim to transformer that's funny because you know you you position it in a way that you go you know what you you absolutely need constraint and you need yeah. to move through these these three phases in your own head, and and you tell you tell a great story in the book about um, when there are no constraints. In fact, mm-hmm. bad things happen. Um, and I remember watching these these terrific ads. Um, I was I was working in Hong Kong at the time. We thought that's so cool. These are so creative. And they were the Nike 180 ads, where basically <laughs> they said, "Hey, you know what? We're going to give a whole bunch of filmmakers a running shoe with a new type of cushion in it, and we're going to let them do whatever they want." And they were super creative. 
creative, but absolutely all over the place, just self-indulgent. Mm. And uh, you talked about that. You also talked about, um, uh, you know, if you don't put constraints on game designers, every single game is going to end up looking like uh, a shoot 'em up thing in New York where guys are racing cars and, and shooting prostitutes. And that's what happens when you don't put a tight constraint on game designers. Just bad, flabby things happen. Yeah. So uh, I thought that was a very funny story. Not well, there's the, the story too of, uh, you know, to contrast with that, the story of um, the development of, you know, arguably the most famous game character of all time, uh, Mario, and the story about how Mario came to be. So this is in the back in the days of 8-bit technology, and it's really hard to render much uh, definition in, in terms of designing a character when you've got 8-bit technology. It very quickly becomes pixelated. But they've got this character, and they're trying to sort of... Um, be, make it clear where his arms and his legs begin and end. So they they managed to put some a very crude rendering of uh, overalls on. So okay, that demarcates where the where the arms are. And they couldn't render facial expressions. So they gave him this huge mustache, and they couldn't render um, hair very well. So they put this kind of floppy beret on him. Those became the defining uh, characteristics of Mario, and he ended up looking like nobody else. That, at that point you, know. you also yeah. talked about Google right I mean the, the yes. reason Google is so simple you just have a bar to type stuff into is because they couldn't figure out how to program it more complicated that's that's a very very funny thing you yeah know, that's they, oftentimes great art comes from the greatest constraints I know and I, you know I think that again the point is we all of us I suspect and once we start engaging with people and having conversation with them about this um, one of the most pr productive exercises is to have people after the pennies dropped and the you know the core ideas are starting to sink in, they'll go, oh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a story, Mark. Something happened to me in my history or my grandfather's history or the history of the business that they're they're working on, where they'll be able to articulate for us constraint-based invention, and that gives them the confidence when they see it in their own biography or the biography of their business. That gives them the confidence to say, oh, we've already done this. Actually, we can do this again. So you know, oftentimes the place to start with a process like this is just a little bit of archaeology on your own business your own situation define a couple of stories tell each other those stories there's a there's a great line in the book that we uh, borrowed from um, psychologist Tim Wilson. He talks about we are the stories we tell ourselves. So let's start telling ourselves stories that we are constraint-driven invent inventors. This is in our biography. And that gives us the confidence to say, okay, so how do we do that again? How do we repeat this more frequently? Because we're going to have to. That is the nature of the modern world, as we've already discussed. If we're going to be successful going forward, we need to get much better at this. Now, you that's a, fan that's a fascinating point because you're drawing the line between disabling constraints and enabling constraints. Mm. And you say in the book too, you talk about the, the most disabling constraints are actually the ones inside our head. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about storytelling as a way to unleash those things to, to get past that roadblock. What are I'm sitting there going, oh my God, how am I going to get past this thing? This is stupid. I'm just going to you know go to sleep for a while. <laughs> uh, how do you get past the, the disabling constraints that are in your head, the things that cripple you as opposed to enable you? Well, this is, this is where we need the method. And let me just um, tell you the core concepts in the method. So, And then we can go back and look at any one of these in more detail that you want. So it begins with this notion of path dependency. So path dependency, basic, very simple idea that says all of us, as human beings or organizations, have a set of habits, assumptions, and biases that have built success for us. They're the reasons why we're successful human beings and or, and or systems. They're great. They've served us really well up to a point where they 
they stop serving us. And when a constraint comes along and whacks you upside the head, those habits, that path dependency can really hold us back. So the first place to start uh, is examining self-limiting beliefs, examining processes that blind us from opportunities, examine, examining the deeply held assumptions of this business, try to clear that stuff out of the way to make room for uh, a fresh approach. And one of the ways that we clear that out of the way is with a what we call a propelling question, a question that is defined in such a way that it propels you off your existing paths onto some kind of new path towards new kind of solutions. And a propelling question is a very specific um, uh, way of, of, of writing questions which couples your biggest ambition, a very specific, bold ambition. Uh, oftentimes what was happening in these situations that we were researching was that people were doing something quite counterintuitive in the face of constraint and actually increasing their ambition as opposed to reducing it to force them to look for new solutions and coupling that bold ambition to a very specific constraint. So let me make that vivid for you if I can. So Audi this is a story told to us by Scott Keogh, the president of Audi in North America. And he said, when Audi realized, as many uh, automobile manufacturers do, that they need to win on the track to boost the prestige of their brand, they identified uh, Le Mans, the 24-hour car race in, in France, and said, we want to win Le Mans. Now, many other automobile manufacturers have said that as well, but Audi's constraint that they placed upon themselves was, we need to win Le Mans with a car that goes no faster than anybody else's, mm -hmm. because they knew they didn't have a superior engine technology. So there's your propelling question. We'd like to win Le Mans, bold ambition, with, a, with the constraint being with a car that goes no faster than anybody else's. Mm -hmm. How are they going to solve that? And it forces, that question forces the engineers to look at novel solutions. You know the answer because you read the book, right, Mark? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's, and a, it's, yeah, it's, it's in the pits, man. It's in the pits. You, don't, go, the you, pits. Don't, you don't take any breaks. You don't take exactly. any pee breaks. Yeah, Scott, so, so they, they, they introduced for the first time into Le Mans turbo diesel technology. This is a technology that Audi uses on the roads in Europe and increasingly over in the US as well now. And it, you know, as, as Scott said, there is no engine in the world that is fast enough to make up time lost by pitting. So they pit less often. They finish first, second, and third on the podium in the first year they introduced that in 2007. And then for a few years afterwards, until the whole world caught up. Catches but it on. came from you know, the articulation of a propelling question by the chief engineer. So, you know, this is one of the key ideas in the book, and it's a great thing for anybody who's listening to this to sit there and think about, which is, what is our propelling question? My personal propelling question, the propelling question or questions, you can have more than one, of our business today, that if we figure out how to meet our ambitions by harnessing the power of constraint. That's an incredible win-win because you're getting somewhere using the very stuff that you've been thinking has been holding you back. Now, that's, that's, it's a very interesting point. I, you know, I, worked, I worked in innovation for quite a while, and they said one of the biggest obstacles to innovation is that once you're inside a company for six months, you go inside the jar. That is, your, the yeah. world looks absolutely normal to you, but you mm -hmm. can only see it from your perspective. So when somebody says, hey, let's think of a new solution to this, you go, oh, no, we can't do that. The boss, is, the boss didn't like it. The boss's wife didn't like it. We tried it four times. Won't work. Never will work. Can't work. Mm. And you think about that, and, and you just walk right past so many opportunities yep. uh, you know and, and it, it is it's it's one of those things you what's so insidious about it is that you can't see it and you that's know? path dependency writ yeah. large. It literally blinds us from seeing the opportunities. Yeah, and then then you know I hear your I hear your Audi story and so many other the great stories, and you go, 
geez, in hindsight, that seems so obvious. If yep. you don't go for as many pit stops, you know, yep. you're gonna go. You're gonna go further quicker. Yep. That's it's it's so obvious. But when you're staring at it, and you've been running a Formula One or a Le Mans team for for twenty years, you go, well, there's just no way. Can't be well, done. You know. It's, well, let, let's stick with the auto racing thing. I'll tell you a story about. Um, so picture this, right? You are Formula One racing, right? Formula One is huge global sport, less so in the US, but massive global sport. And right up until 2005, that business, that industry, uh, that body was was floated on the back of tobacco uh, sponsorship money. But the European Union has said, you know, this, this can't go on. We're going to cut all tobacco sponsorship. So there's an entire industry, massive global sport, that's just lost its primary source of revenue. You would think that that would, and it, and it certainly triggered in the industry this kind of wringing of hands. But how will Formula One ever be the same? You know, without the tobacco money, we can't possibly do this. But one particular guy, Ron Dennis, who's the head of McLaren Auto Racing, said, "Look, you know, we can either be defeated by this, or we can be the organisation that gets the best sponsors, that uses the opportunity in this to find new and better ways and become the vibrant um, brand in that in that world." And so, it kickstarted for he and his team a root and branch re-examination of all their practices. So, in the pits, they had twenty cameras pointing at each of the different twenty people in that pit, saying, "You know, we're going to take fractions of a second off each of your uh, behaviours in the pit by." studying it uh, down to the nth degree. And they were able, over the course of um, several months of experimentation, to reduce the pit stop rec world record from four seconds in Formula 1 to 2.5 seconds. And, but it came from this understanding that the world just changed. We don't have as much money. We're not going to win by investing more money now. We're going to win by figuring out ways to be far more efficient. And, you know, it's, it's made them a better race team. It's made Formula One better, arguably, as well. Comedy. Jerry yeah. Seinfeld. I mean, it's, it, it, it was one of those things, too, where you, you, had a, you had a school of comedy, which was a whole bunch of people using potty mouth and, and talking about insane stuff. And then Jerry Seinfeld comes out and starts talking about chairs. And he, you know, he creates a show about nothing and you're going, that is the most bizarre, awful concept I've ever heard in my life. And it was fantastic. And it was precisely because he said, you know, we got to change things up. We got to shake things up and uh, we got to move the whole area of comedy forward. And uh, they did shows about nothing. Yep. You know, that's 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 a wild thing. Can you tell tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, this is it's it's fascinating because you know once you start once you have a lens on the world as Adam and I did for the last few years, you start finding these stories everywhere. So Adam found this story. It's just a, a an in depth profile of Jerry Seinfeld in New York Magazine, where he was described as a comedy athlete, sort of like a superhuman comic, because. He routinely denies himself all the usual material that most comics on the road use. And he does it in order to you know, promote himself. It's basically his version of a propelling question. It forces him to create comedy unlike comedy that anybody else is creating. And it, the discipline to, to do that, to go, I'm not going to go for the easy laugh. I'm not going to go for the, e you know, imagine how easy it is to show up and do 20 minutes on George Bush. He, he just never does that. And yeah. it makes him into this kind of unique comic. You know, it's hard to argue with the commercial success of Seinfeld. I think he created something that was so unique in the world. As a consequence of denying himself, of, of imposing 
constraints on himself. And this is, you know, there are certain people and, and organizations that we, we mention in the book that have got to that point now of such great confidence in their own ability to find the transformative power of constraints in their businesses that they actually seek them out and they impose them upon themselves. And they believe, in the case of Nike, Ikea, and Unilever, that this creates competitive advantage for them. And that's true of big companies, but it's true of, you know, comedians and, and race car mechanics too. Yeah. We talk about putting insane constraints on yourself and actually using it to foster your creativity. Um, one of the most amazing stories in the book is um, it's about Taiwan. Mm. Right. And I, I know because uh, I worked in Asia for quite a while. Also, the case of Singapore, where when Singapore um, was became independent, they didn't even have their own source of water. And, right. you know, you had a fascinating story about Taiwan and how they basically left China and they went and lived on this rock with virtually nothing. And they created this amazing transformation. Yeah. And it was on the back of education. Yep. Right. Well, and it came from, again, it's kind of a, a good example of when you have this lens, you start seeing stuff. I was just flicking through the book to see if I could find the quote, because it was a, a piece that Thomas Friedman had written in the New York Times that led us to uh, interviewing the people at the Taiwanese embassy um, in Washington, D.C., at great length about how they'd done this. And Friedman described uh, Taiwan as a barren rock in the middle of the ocean, something along those lines. And yet, it has higher GDP uh, per capita than certainly than the US yeah. and, and many other um, yeah. countries in that part of the world. And so Friedman says, well, how did they do that? And it came from a very systematic approach towards developing, if they don't have natural resources, natural capital in the form of oil in the ground or yeah. banana plantations or whatever, they had to create human capital that invest very heavily in their education system. But um, in the early 50s, most people are getting six years of education at the most. So mm -hmm. the first thing they said was, let's increase the amount of education we give every citizen from six years to nine, nine years. years yeah. The problem was, well, we can't do that because we don't have enough teachers. Yeah. Okay, so how do we create a pool of alternative teachers, people who are graduates and PhD students? Let's convert them into part-time teachers and have them do it. Well, we don't have the time to train them. Well, we can if we introduce a program where these teachers get trained on the job. So let's right. acknowledge and so on and so forth. Now, you, I mean, talking about education too, you also talked about um, US schools. To, to, to make kids sort of raise their hands when they were too shy or too afraid to raise their hands and help the kids keep score mm -hmm. when they were uh, when they were answering questions. Can you explain that, that little amazing thing of that yes. amazing piece of technology? So, well, this is a story about Leadership Public Schools, which is a small charter school system here in the East Bay of California. Uh, they're drawing kids from very underprivileged populations. So, you know, Louise Waters, whom I met at a dinner party, quite randomly said, and I was talking about the book, and she said, you want to know about constraints? Come and see what my school looks like in Richmond. So they've got kids coming. They've kind of, you know, she said, they've given up on school. Right, mm -hmm. they're, they're entering high school, they're so far behind, and her staff uh, had to figure out how to accelerate kids who'd given up on school, accelerate them two to three grade levels per year in order to get them college ready. So big ambition, very specific, accelerate, you know, going back to the propelling question, mm -hmm. accelerate kids uh, two to three grade levels one, in one year when they've given up on school. They're not going to get these kids to stay after hours and they don't have additional resources. So they've got to fix it there and then. Now, fortunately, Louise had been, don she had donated to her some clickers that they use at conferences. You may have been to a conference where it's right, like... Where you can vote, vote for things. Correct. Yeah. 
And so she's like, what's the opportunity in this? So she hired a part-time CTO and said, can you figure out how to use those clickers where we're engaging the kids in real time? Let's see what the aggregate answers of the classroom are towards this very simple question. Yes, no. Uh, and let's see if we can get them interested in improving the aggregate score. And that worked. It was like they're all playing this big game. Then they developed in very, you know, kludging this stuff together, buying used iPods on eBay at one o'clock in the morning. Could they figure out how to use these used iPods for next generation clickers where kids can get individual feedback and have the teacher monitor it in some kind of way? So the teacher could tell that, you know, Joe didn't understand this particular formula in algebra in real time, go over there, do a quick intervention, three or four minutes, get him back on track, move over to the next person. It was highly customized, real-time feedback allowed by this simple rudimentary gamification engine, which they then create, called it's called Exit Ticket. If you're a school teacher and you're looking for ways to improve and, and accelerate learning in your classroom, go to Exit Ticket and find this thing, because they built an app, it's phenomenally powerful, it's being very successful. And it, again, it came out of embracing, very aggressively embracing the constraint and figuring out what the opportunity was for them by, because they didn't have, they, you know, they had to go through this discipline of focusing on the answer to that propelling question. And it's been game changer for them. Well, it, it's, it's phenomenal too, because you go, okay, all the resources that we have at our disposal, we don't have the teachers, we don't have the time, the kids can't stay after school because they're probably supporting their parents mm -hmm. or their other brothers and sisters. So all these things that we can't have, and then you go the most I mean, again, in hindsight, it's like the car example with Audi. Uh, one of these resources that we have that's completely underutilized is kids' sense of competitiveness and, yeah. and their idea that if you turn something into a game, they want to play. Right. And, and if you can somehow fool them into learning and, and making their brains better by making them think they're playing a game, yay, go to yeah. And it took off like gangbusters. What a, yeah. what a great story. But it's one of those things you go, that's a resource? I didn't know that was a resource. No, no what's, what's been fascinating about the interaction, before we, before we started recording here, Mark, you and I were talking about mm -hmm. the adventures that this book um, has uh, facilitated in my life. And one of them has been a deep engagement with the leadership public school staff. And they're, they're saying to me now, it's like, look, you need to come back and you need to talk to our kids about the principles of a beautiful constraint because it's writ large in their life. And if we can shift their mindset away from being this victim mentality mm -hmm. to being more of a transformer, you know, acknowledging that, you know, I don't want to be sort of um, glib. glib about about how that works and the, and the issues that they're facing. But, you know, it, it's, it's been great. It's been a real endorsement of the fact that they see, and because they've been embodying these principles themselves, they see this as the way forward, as being able to, talk to kids about how to shift their mindset now final question because mm. I, we we, uh, we were there's so much stuff in here there's so much that we can go through but my passion uh, is is helping brands uh, that don't want to end up on the trash heap of history you know I, I I try to look for signs of companies and brands that didn't see the future coming that got wiped out or brands that were successful at, at looking at all the signs and indicators saying hey this is coming we got to prepare for this to me uh, the world of financial constraint, resource constraint is, is looming large. It's even bigger than it was before. Um, any thoughts for brands, a, a practice that they should set up, a thing that they should consider going forward? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think um, just the fact that so many Fortune 500 companies from the early part of this um, 
from the from the middle of last century, no longer on the Fortune 500, yeah. should be the place to start. There is a business case uh, for change to be made. Um, the way that we see the modern corporation being, you know, a corporate athlete in the way that Seinfeld is a comedy athlete is to get used to create a facility, create a, a nimbleness and agility around constraints by beginning to impose constraints proactively on your business. Um, not only will you find opportunities that nobody else is even looking for, because most of us, most corporations will navigate around the constraints. They're still in that victim and neutralizer mentality. Mm -hmm. Put those constraints at the heart of your process. Ask some very simple but profound propelling questions of your business and begin the process of getting your teams uh, to a point where they feel confident in embracing those constraints and finding the opportunities that exist in them. And if you're, if you're able to do that, you're going to be more fit for purpose going forward. You're going to be more able to respond to the inevitable constraints that are coming your way. And you'll be the ones that survive, again, in the way that Unilever, Nike, Ikea, those, the chapters on, on those um, firms in this book, mm -hmm. for me, completely convinced me that big companies can become really, really good at this and will create competitive advantage around their capability in the face of constraints. You know, it's, it's funny because um, uh, one of my most popular talks now, and I give this to small companies and big companies, it's all about bootstrap marketing, you know, something mm. I learned from the tech world and, and, and how these guys basically with a napkin and a credit card are, are, are marketing their companies and, and doing a good job of it. And I think that's something too that big companies could almost take on as a constraint. Go imagine if we only had a napkin and a credit card, uh, what would we do? You yeah, know, with and it's so enjoyable. You know, yeah. people initially are kind of like, oh, I don't even know how to get started. But once you giving them these simple tools, what's the propelling question? What's the kind of thinking? How do we create abundance here? Concept we didn't get into. Yeah. It's enjoyable. You know, it's it's um, and they realize they go on this little mini journey themselves of, of self discovery of oh yeah, I was kind of in the victim mode when I walked in the room, and now I'm feeling confident as a transformer. That's a wonderful gift to give your people. Yeah. It's going to create business opportunities, but more importantly, perhaps is going to create people that um, are engaged in their work and feel like they're really capable. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, once once you, like an athlete, once you feel like you're working out, you start to feel better about yourself, mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. And I know um, living in Canada, uh, we live in a resource economy up here, you know? It's stuff we chop down, dig out of the ground and pump out of the ground. And it makes for a flabby, defeatist culture, you know? Yep. Whereas you look at Singapore and you look at Taiwan, you go, well, shoot a rocket to the moon with uh, a rubber band and chewing gum. Why not? You know, right. and and here it's like we're it's incredible how many no's we have to every question, and I think it just makes flabby thinking. Yeah. Um, anyways, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And uh, again, a beautiful constraint available everywhere, but mostly on Amazon, where all the lazy people like me will find it. <laughs> um, and uh, ideas, where to catch you in the future? Is there a speaking schedule? Um, I'm always out there speaking, yeah, but I, you know, what I would ask, uh, so first of all, thank you, Mark, for having me on, but if anybody's um, got a story based on listening to this uh, podcast, they go, you know, I've got a great case for you, Mark. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Mark, M-A-R-K, at eatbigfish.com, or you can follow me on Twitter where I'm constantly pushing this stuff out there, which is Mark C. Barden, B-A-R-D-E-N, on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. This is a fantastic, fantastic book. I loved it. Great. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate the support. Bye-bye. Talk to you. You've been listening to Didn't See It Coming, the podcast about brands that are learning from the past, looking to the future, and succeeding today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>